0: Welcome to Five Things About, the University of Melbourne podcast. I'm Chris Hatzis. Five Things About is for you that just loves to know what others know about experiences, inventions, ideas, people, and places. Today, we explore five things about Indigenous knowledge.
1: Hello. I'm Associate Professor Sana Nakata, a Torres Strait Islander and Associate Dean Indigenous at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne. And today I'm speaking with Associate Professor Michael Sean Fletcher, who is, among other things, Associate Dean Indigenous, my counterpart in the Faculty of Science. But I might kick over to Michael and ask you to share with everyone what your roles at the university are.
2: Thanks, Sana. Lovely chat. Yeah, so I'm uh, Associate Dean Indigenous in the Faculty of Science, as you said. I'm also Director of Research and Research Capability in the Indigenous Knowledge Institute, a cross-faculty institute in the University of Melbourne that's focused on, in the research space on Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous knowledges. I'm a Wiradjuri man, and my scientific work involves looking at the fossil record to reconstruct environments through time and I focus a lot on how people shape the world around them, and uh, how that happens over for thousands to tens of thousands of years.
1: Thanks, Michael. So we're here to talk about today five things you know about Indigenous knowledges. So I guess we'll open up with the big question, which is, what is Indigenous knowledge?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. I mean, I mean, knowledge is is a similar thing throughout different cultures. So for me, Indigenous knowledge is a an embodied type of being. It's a knowledge that's based on a reciprocity with the world around us, where we are constantly negotiating, if you like, with uh, our environment. We don't abstract ourselves from the world around us, as is probably the the kind of dominant theme, I think, through Western knowledge systems, where there's this sort of an abstraction and an attempt to understand the world around us through um, the pursuit of objective truths, for want of a better word. I think Indigenous knowledge, we place ourselves within the world around us. We don't necessarily see non-human entities such as landscapes and, and other living things as separate from ourselves. We see ourselves as a part of the one our system and that to operate in the world we need to engage in a reciprocal relationship and respect and care for the world around us and in doing so then we are respected and cared for ourselves. So I think it's a for me it's about a positionality of where we place ourselves in the world around us um, and it's not unique to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. It's a, an embodied notion that is actually present through the majority of Indigenous communities across the world and I imagine the predecessors of the European paradigms probably had a similar um, epistemology, a way of viewing the world of of an embeddedness, and I guess they're probably referred to as pagans and things now, but um, so it's just that that positionality for me is the is the main thing
1: I mean it's really interesting to hear you describe that in a way that immediately i think brings to mind the ways in which Indigenous knowledge is contrasted with what we understand Western knowledge as to be grounded in. And noting, as you just did, that Western knowledge as we know it today in a modern sense really emerges from the European Enlightenment and a particular break in the ontological and epistemological foundations of Western knowledge itself, that Western knowledge as it belongs to the European continent is also changing and has changed um, over centuries. And in a lot of ways what we have assumed knowledge to be is this disembodied, abstracted pursuit of sort of science as objectivity and positivism rather than other traditions we might pick that thread up in a few few more minutes around the contrast to Western knowledge. I wonder if you might be able to speak a little bit to some of the examples of these Indigenous knowledge practices as more embodied and reciprocal and connected to country.
2: Yeah, for me, I think the, the best example of this in in contemporary world that we can grab a hold of and look at are, are some of the amazing seasonal calendars that, that come out from different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups around the country. And, and you can see that, I guess, the, the scientific way of describing it would be that they're phenomenological. You know, so we're picking up cues in the landscape. And I see it every time every, with my kids. I walk around through the year and you can see when the wattles are flowering, you know, that we're sort of getting to the end of winter and spring's not far away. And that sort of follows on from different movements of animals in the landscape and all of this sort of stuff. And some of these, I mean, the amount of knowledge in these seasonal calendars is just astounding you know you could just look at them and think oh you know it's you know a b c d but the way it relates to what then people need to do in landscapes especially say with burning country or when eels are present and what needs to happen with uh, aquaculture systems all of this is reciprocity and for me in that particular uh, context it's a much more appropriate way of living in a dynamic world it allows change Whereas the Gregorian calendar, which we all fix ourselves to and say, oh, well, today's the start of summer. Oh, summer started late this year or summer started early this year. And that's just all a product of this fixed uh, way that we've viewed the world. And that, for me, that's an, a great example of that sort of abstraction and an attempt to sort of codify the world and, and make it predictable that's sort of come out of the Western Western way of, of doing things. And it's interesting that contrast point you brought up, I mean, a definitions By definitions, by definition, are are contrasts, aren't they? You know, like we define things um, by themselves and in, in how they contrast against other things. So, I think for me, that's a great example of of indigenous knowledge. It's it's understanding. It's nuanced. It's flexible to change, and it's a product of living, you know, on this continent throughout some really massive changes of environment. I mean if you think about when people arrived prior to sixty odd thousand years ago, it was during an ice age, well, the the very beginning of an ice age, and we plunged further and deeper into an ice age and there would have been there were really huge changes, oceans going up and down 150 meters, climate changing, where things grow changing. And sometimes these would have been quite rapid, you know, like within generations. And the ability to have a flexible system and to negotiate those changes it gave us a successful um, culture and society that was living in, in the country now. And I think a lot of our problems stem from inflexibility. You know, the very fact that we have these cities growing and, and we have these agricultural areas and climate's changing and they'll have to move, you know. So there's an inflexibility that we've created, not only in the way that we understand the world, for example, through this, the Gregorian calendar, but also the way that we live. And I think that that's. Set yourselves up, uh, lowers your resilience, actually, to change. And for me, that's um, one of the great examples of Indigenous knowledge and how it's Mm. more appropriate, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting part of that inflexibility that you're describing is a kind of um, a logic that really positions human beings as the masters of the natural world around us, rather than, as you said earlier in our appreciation of Indigenous knowledge systems as embodied parts of the landscape that are created by and create in turn the environment around us. I've really enjoyed this year actually taking some time to learn about the Eastern Kulin Nation seasonal calendar and I've been doing that through a little bit of work with my children's school in conversations I've been having with them about useful and accessible ways for primary school aged children to engage with Indigenous knowledges rather than to preoccupy themselves so much with Indigenous culture. As much as Indigenous culture's are wonderful. You know, I'm always interested in the ways in which it's easy for people to point to things like song and dance and food and costume rather than things that actually reflect different ways of understanding and relating the world to yeah, us. Yeah, it's, it's such
2: a great point, actually. It's it's almost exoticization, really, like it's it's the other and it's more difficult to engage with the other, but actually it's very easy to engage with the seasonal calendar or, or kind of the knowledge system.
1: And I think so much that if you engage with the knowledge system, then actually your appreciation of what's contained in those songs and dances, which are forms of knowledge translation and transmitting knowledge across generations in so many of our communities is really wonderful. So I'm not sure of the pronunciation in Woi Wurong language, but I understand the current season is Waring season or Wombat season and, um, it's described as cool and rainy days that follow misty mornings. Mm. And I, you know, I just think that's such an accurate description of these mornings that we have on these cool wintry days um, on NAM. Um, thanks so much for, for talking through some of those examples in the seasonal calendar. Can I invite you to reflect a little bit on how that's informed or how that intersects with your own research interests and some of the projects that you work on?
2: Yeah, I think the way that it impacts my research is, you know, we have this myth that science is objective and in search of truths. And this is, once again, a product of that kind of different epistemology. And, you know, it's pseudo-religious, really. Like, the irony is that the Enlightenment was sort of sought to break free from the dogma of codified religion and yet still imposed a similar kind of mentality about our relationship with the world. Um, so it's not really that different. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> replacing replacing God with science, I guess. Yes. Um, so the truth is, is that the questions you ask and the way that you view a topic dictate the kind of research you do or the kind of way that you seek to answer those questions. That's all science is. It's it's making predictions based on your understanding, testing those and observing, and then refining your your worldview. Um, The mentality that you have or the perspective you have going in dictates what you do and it dictates the kind of answers you get and the way that you view those answers. So that's fine as long as you understand that. So what I seek to do, particularly in the landscape space, is is rather than, and I I notice this sort of trend in the work that I do of reconstructing environments through time and then going through a process of elimination where if we wanted to say that this was a human-constructed landscape, it had to be the last explanation standing. You know, So the burden of proof was incredibly high. Mm-hmm. Yet we drive through through country today and we see farms and things and we don't think they're natural. We know, we assume. We don't actually see people making these things, but we know and we assume that these are constructed landscapes. So the dominant paradigm really was to assume, assume, and this is the wilderness myth, if you like, mm-hmm. is that prior to the British invasion that this landscape was... Essentially unoccupied, or if it was occupied, it wasn't managed. It was in a natural wilderness state, and the the dice are loaded. Essentially, if you reconstruct environments through time and and try and end up with, well, how do you know it wasn't the soils? How do you know it wasn't the this, the that, the that, the that, and we never get those absolute, definitive things in in the natural sciences. And I thought, well, what if we ask it a different way? You know, what if we have the dice loaded the other way? Prove that this isn't. And mm-hmm. you know, Start with the fact that we know that Aboriginal people manage landscapes. We know that humans all over the world engage in landscape management, which is to create a safe, predictable and resource-rich environment. And that's what humans do. We're all homo sapiens. So taking the kind of conversations that I have with traditional owners and other Indigenous group, uh, people about the way they view country, the way that... Uh, they engage with country, and allowing that to sort of set the paradigm of of burden of proof has really shed significant light on on the kind of answers I get, if you like. That um, you know, it's very easy to see the human agency. You know, in some cases, it's really stark. You yeah. know, when Aboriginal people are pulled off country, and there are huge changes. You know, catastrophic fires increase, biodiversity goes down, all of these sorts of things. So we know that's the case. So it's just by shifting the perspective and the understanding, um, you can end up with a different kind of light being shone on the subject. And I think that's the way we get closer to whatever truth is. I mean, I've always had this adage that the truth is the intersection of the best lies. So (laughs) the amount of different views that we have on a topic and different perspectives, we get somewhere near, you know, like that Venn diagram um, of lots of shining lights on a topic and we can see all sides. So that's how it sort of guided me in my work
1: actually got two questions here. First question I want to ask is, can you say a little bit more about the wilderness myth and your contribution to that debate? Um, And the second question I wanted to ask, which was just to pick up on that, which was, why do you think it's so controversial in public? Well, not just public debate, but scholarly debate. Why is it so controversial to um, switch the perspective in that way? You know, to make the assumption that Indigenous people like all human beings have been shown to do to manage the land around them to protect their survival and, you know, in, ensure a, a livelihood. I leave it to you to take those two questions in turn, I guess.
2: Yeah, yeah, and they're great. They, they, they are interconnected. So the wilderness myth is, I think that all of these things are born from the same, same position or the same um, starting point, and that's the failure or that's the superiority that Europeans carried around with them around the world. And the alienness, if there's such a word, of, of arriving to new lands and, and seeing them and being so different, if you like, to to Europe. And we are. I mean, the, the vast majority of these colonisations into to new territories were done by the Europeans, which all, despite their differences in language and, and cultures, all had a very um, uniform epistemology, if you like, and prioritisation of science or the church. Um, and a... A belief, you know, and this is a factual belief, that Indigenous peoples were not even human; they were subhuman. Yeah. Um, you know, in some cases, not that far away from our ape ancestors. You know, this is the time when Darwin was um, coming up with his idea that we all descended from apes, and European people were seeking, I guess, to distance themselves from these ape ancestors, and they saw validation of that from primitive peoples, and didn't really assign them any human agency whatsoever. Out of that and moving into new lands and not seeing the kind of land management that them in their idiosyncratic little part of the world had assumed a lack of management. Mm. Or it, A, assumed that they couldn't have been capable of, of coordinated and, and um, deliberate agency in, in landscapes. Uh, so landscapes were seen as wilderness. And this has been a very, very strong myth. I mean, we all know that terra nullius was based on that this land was unoccupied. We all know that's a complete myth. And we all know that a lot of Australians today fully recognise that Aboriginal people are humans and have agency in the landscape. But sort of very weirdly, paradoxically, that a lot, of, most of people still hang on to this myth of wilderness. And you see, still see it as a very prevalent um, part of Australian discourse, global discourse really, and I'm not sure, I'm not a sort of communal psychologist, but for me there's a few things going on there. We're recognising more and more about the catastrophic toll we're having on the envi- world around us. And the notion that there's some untouched part of the earth that we don't have a footprint on mm. brings uh, solace or comfort to people, I think. And it's a very powerful, uh, mystical almost thing for people. Um, and it, it's hard for them to let go.
1: Yeah, there's a romanticism, isn't there, to the idea of an untouched mm. place, uncontaminated un- by human interference. Yep. I'm going to ask you a quick question, um, which you may not know the answer to. But where does Antarctica sit on that?
2: Uh, well, I mean, they've just discovered now that the Maori probably right visited Antarctica. You yes. know, like there's yep. uh, it's in their stories. Yeah. You know, that's in their it's in their knowledge system. You yep. know. This is the thing about oral knowledge. I mean, you look listen to Aboriginal. Uh, oral knowledge, and there's hardwired into that, that knowledge, is times of, there had to be the last ice age. You know, I know no written system that can record information for 20,000 years and have it stay, you know. So I fully believe the Maori or, oral knowledge of, of going to Antarctica. The utilisation of the place, you know, might not have been that. They may have yep. hunted there or done whatever they did. Who knows? Mm. I'm sure the Maori know. Um, so it, I guess it's as close to a wilderness as, as we can get um for whatever and, that is
1: yes and yet I think you know I asked that question out of curiosity but it, it goes to your earlier point about our preoccupation um in the academy really with with truth seeking like in some ways the question in indigenous knowledges and indigenous knowledge debates also becomes why does it matter <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, um and I I think that that's a really interesting question you know for me in the social sciences there's a real politics to why it matters to be able to demonstrate the forms of, not just, you know, knowledge practices practices is a sort of all-encompassing term, but all forms of social practices and agricultural practices, land-managed practices, fishing, that these are demonstrating the existence of these knowledges takes on a political characteristic in the historical context that Indigenous peoples were defined by not having human qualities. So I think that goes to the question of, you know, why does it matter? Why, you know, why does knowing about Indigenous knowledges matter? And who is it for? Anyway, I'm losing my train of thought. So no, no, I think it's a, my it's a great
2: point. So the why it matters... One of the issues here is that for a long time, conservation, for whatever that means, was guided by this principle. You know, our attempt to to mitigate the damage that we see done around us um, was guided by the principles. Oh well, landscapes are better without human interference. The zero footprint idea, all of this sort of stuff, and we're seeing increasingly that that is actually destroying landscapes, particularly in places like Australia, but also in you know the USA. Southeast Asia, the Amazon you know there's all of these places are they're the product of long term human agency and it didn't look like European agency, so it wasn't given credit, but it was human agency whether it was burning or swidden agriculture which is slash and burn in small areas and some of these areas are the most biodiverse places on earth look at Papua New Guinea has the greatest linguistic diversity and some of the most the highest biodiversity on earth and this is because people were living in it and managing it so the the notion that that there's a Humans and biodiverse and healthy country are an anathema. is is false that the landscapes need human intervention. They just don't need some types of human intervention. And it's just this this superiority thing going on in the European mindset that that whatever human agency equals what we do. And it's this reluctance and inability to understand that there are different types of way of engaging and 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 behaving in country. And the wilderness idea, which excludes people, actually destroys the very values that a lot of these people are trying to to care for and look after. And it's really damaging. I mean, it's, Australia's got the fastest biodiversity loss on Earth. We have these catastrophic fires that are rolling through.
1: And these, these you know, I think um, I understand from your work and others, these catastrophic fires that we've had in recent years are very much about the lack of human management of you know cultural the loss of cultural burning practices and the the growth that it produces in fire resistant undergrowth is it's
2: now that when we've we've just sort of submitted a review where we did some sophisticated science to to look at this and it's irrefutable across southeast australia that you know the british invasion and the the removal and suppression of cultural burning was followed by an increase in flammable fuel loads in the in the landscape and an increase in fire. It's irrefutable. Yeah. You know, there's some nuance around that. There are some forest systems like the mountain ash forests, which are always brought up as the example to shoot down this idea. Mm-hmm. Sure, they were forests that had catastrophic fires, but they weren't occurring from Queensland through to Victoria. Mm-hmm. You know, these these sorts of things are the direct product of not managing country and poor management, which are the direct product of this myth that landscapes are wilderness, you know, and which is a direct product of this um, dehumanising narrative that came across from Europe and still, you know, paradoxically, still exists in many of our management paradigms, even by some of the woke people who are trying to give Aboriginal people agency. They still hold on to this view. Yes. And, you know, the path forward is a radical change and a step away from that. Otherwise, it's just going to keep happening.
1: Yeah. No, and I think that, I, I think it's this too, you know, that Indigenous knowledges matter in a, in a twofold related way, which is that it matters because it has a demonstrable impact on our natural environment that we live in and that sustain human existence and that we're witnessing in our generation, you know, um, some really catastrophic impacts, um, you know, that are going to, you know, that embody, I guess, some of the most um, significant challenges that come with climate change, Um In the decades and centuries ahead. But it also matters because allowing Indigenous people to demonstrate the knowledges that have been held and contained through communities of people that have lived on land um, and cared for country over tens of thousands. Of years is also a testimony to our humanity, to our intellect, to our a whole range of our capacities that have been so long des- denied, and that continue to contribute to arguments that justify, you know, our sort of subjugation for want of a better word.
2: Yeah, oh, and I think as a, as another point there that sort of adds on to that, this isn't just an environment thing, you know. Yeah. So this caring for country or the connecting to country, the part of being embodied and, and having this reciprocity and looking after country is that it looks after you, you know, and I, I I can't help but kind of have a sad, ironic laugh when I see research come out saying that, oh, look, we've discovered that people are, are happier when they engage in the world around <laughs> them and, and all of this sort of stuff. It's We've just really, we're in this really diametric existence where we divorced, you know. And there's a whole lot of things we can talk about here, but you know, so with the the kids, I won't let them waste food, you know, or, or all these sorts of things, because we're completely divorced with where our food comes from. We're completely divorced from from all of these things that happen and that are the direct impact of our actions. Yet we, it's almost like I don't know if you've read a Brave New World where they have you know soma holidays, you know, like and have and uh, take this drug and and whatever, get regenerated and rejuvenated. <laughs> it's like oh we'll get out into the country for a little bit of a dose of our medicine to yes. to allow our mentality to exist in this you know city and and divorced and disembodied existence whereas you know that's where i think our mobs can show the way you know yeah. like it's it's about mediating that and and having it more present through our lives, connecting with country. You don't have to go out into the bush. You just have to walk around and have a look. And ironically, through lockdown, I think we started to approach this in the first lockdown we had in Melbourne, where people were walking around. You know, you had your two hours to get out and, you know, people were smiling in the streets and people down the park. I never saw so many people having picnics, (laughs) all this sort of stuff. You know, that's connecting to country, you know, like it's understanding where you live and where it's just sort of in this rat race, you know, of of now where we sort of plug in here, plug in there, plug in there. and. Mm -hmm. And kind of really split our lives up. And, and I think that, you know, the sort of caring for country and caring for you is, is something we could move forward with, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, in some ways, again, what you're describing is the further breaking down of what we understand knowledge to be, you know, which is that knowledge is not just something we study or it's not just something we create up here in the institutions or the ivory towers, but knowledge is also the thing that you go and do every day. You can't, Um, always or constructively separate it out from how you live your life I want to ask a question about what the challenges or barriers are to how we implement Indigenous knowledges how we um, widen the audience I guess or or yeah, and I'm talking about the audience really within the academy and our international peers as much as our public audience. How do we communicate Indigenous knowledges to wider audiences, including non-Indigenous audiences? And can we always do that or are there some things that, you know, we can't communicate easily?
2: It's a really good question. I think all of those, um, there are some things that are, that are, I don't know spiritual. I guess you know that um, you need to be practicing and and doing. So, for example, I think land management can be something that we all do together, but it should be led and guided by um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, based on the right kind of ethos, you know, like and for the right reasons. You know, for example, I'll use the land management, we burn now, but we do this hazard reduction burning around assets and sort of fluff around the edges and we don't move through country and, Mm. and manage it all for the right reasons. You know, we're sitting there just trying to pull the fuel lever the whole time. But it's more more than that. It's just about health of and caring for country and cleaning country and all of these sorts of things. So there's you know, it's a two way, it's a relationship and we need to move forward, but I think we need to lead in many circumstances, but about um, getting Indigenous knowledge out, accepted and embodied, or or placed in society broadly, there's a lot of things. I mean, where any moment in time is a mixture of generations, we still have um, a large part, very influential. You know, the set of people who are governing this country, uh, middle to older age white men, and they have very entrenched views about the way the world is, and for all the lip service they might pay to Aboriginal people and their their knowledge,s they are still rooted in this idea that Aboriginal people were noble savages, you know, mm. not really doing much in the landscape. All these sorts of things. You see this in the Dark Emu debate now, and and no doubt that there's some truth in all the arguments in this, you know. Like, yeah. But the one thing, and being a, a historian in the sense of of, um, I look at the past through the fossil record, the one thing you know, and for example, you and I'll have a conversation tomorrow about our conversation now, <laughs> and we might disagree on some things, yeah. you know, there's an attrition of information through time and it'll always be debated, you know? So this dark emu thing that's going on right now mm-hmm. is is just a, it's a difference of the view of history, you know? Yeah. And for me, a large part of, of what its issue is, is semantics. You know, yeah. it's it's control over what agriculture equals. Yes. It's not what Aboriginal people were or weren't doing in many cases. It's about how you interpret the meaning of words. And I think it's just a ridiculous argument in many ways. But I think that there needs to be a generational change and that generational change won't happen until we start introducing some meaningful curriculum in for the young people. Mm -hmm. And it'll take a while to filter through. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know, like old people are less inclined to take on new ideas because it challenges their worldview. You know, some people might say this is just a, White guilt running through society may or may not be, you know. Like, if we actually start saying, Wow, these people were, um, you know, active agents and landscape managers and all this sort of stuff, all this terra nullius myth, and all the murders we committed, and all the disease we spread, and all the lamb we stole was actually murder and stolen, and da-da-da. you know, it wasn't <laughs> just, Hey, you know, we're here and this is ours now, we stuck a flag in, and no one was here. So, there's that, it may well be a thing, and but there's also just this inability to change your mentality, we seek constantly through our negotiation with the world to build a a framework of understanding. And when things rattle our cage that much, um, we push back in many ways. I think it's a very unique set of people who are completely open and accept the change. Um, And some people, you know, we can't deny, there are clear racists out there, but there are also people who are just resistant to change. And the way for that for me, in my mind, is teaching young people. You know, and young people are open and open-minded. Then the debate comes to, well, what are we teaching them? You know, we have to teach them the truth. You know, you know the part of the thing that drove this latest critique of Dark Emu was that there was a the notion that it was filtering through to school curricula. Mm. And the, one of the guys who wrote it, Sutton, was actually said that. You know, yeah. He was outraged. And I think to myself, well, what about all the lies that have been taught about Aboriginal people through time? You know, yes. where's the outrage for that? You know, I remember being at school and you know, oh, there was an Aboriginal people and, hey, Captain Cook came along.
0: That's Where right. are
2: the lies and, and lack yeah. of information and where was the outrage about all that? There wasn't, you know, but as soon as this comes along, there's outrage. Yeah. So rather than having sensible conversation about it, it's just, you know, it's go. in many ways they go the man, not the ball, you know, to mm-hmm. get a footy, footy uh, term in there. So the, it's going to take a fair bit.
1: Yeah. Know? I mean, I think that's good. I think the school sites are really... Interesting. It's always interesting. I think that um, some of the most heated controversies in society come to figure around how things are taking shape in the school and how people are translating their research or um, their knowledges. Into the next generation, because of course that is the moment of impact, and so people latch onto it as a as a genuine side of contestation, because it's a way of controlling um, really what it is that the next generation will carry through. And will they ch- carry through an impetus for change as a result of a different perspective, or will they carry through the same perspective that all generations before them on this? continents since colonisation have have carried. So it's interesting because I think it, it, it never takes me by surprise that um, school curriculum or, or the education of young people becomes the moment where people express their outrage. But thank you. I mean, I think it's, I think what you've set out today is a real, really illustrative and um, exciting landscape, I'm going to call it of Indigenous knowledges, which is that it is a landscape in the sense that it is connected to country and of country and that it locates human beings in that country in a reciprocal and embodied way rather than as the outside objective scientist that sort of studying it from afar through a lens as though knowledge gets better and more improved the further and further away you are from the context I don't know if there's any other reflections you want to offer on how you'd like to see Indigenous knowledges change the world beyond um, what you've already des- described in this sort of um, hope for what a changed perspective in the new- next generation might bring.
2: I think it, just touching on your last point, it's it's so true. I I'd take it even further with this kind of uh, objective observer notion. The more you do that, the less you know about something. You know there's this it's like subjectivity is a bad word, you know, like it's not you know we need to understand things and we need we deny the truth if we assume that we're not being subjective, you know, and if we pretend it's a charade really, and if you can't build a way forward on lies, you know, so <laughs> I think acknowledging that and and taking um it for what it is, you know and then bringing in different perspectives and different ways of understanding and looking at something and then coming to a truth you know is is the right way forward in terms of um, moving forward, I think yeah you know, I would really like to see you know because I've got young kids and I see how little they're taught about um, their place and where they are even as simple as you know why why isn't my don't my kids have Aboriginal word names from the local language up around the room even if the language isn't complete you know mm, yeah. it starts to place them and understand that there's something different and something else going on. And I think that that's just a tiny thing that, you know, opens awareness. So we can make a lot of little changes. It doesn't have to be radical, you know, like it's just little tweaks around here and there. And then you you start to move forward. I think uh, quite often we're focused on the big change and we get lost in, oh, well, it's all too hard. Because, you know, you don't have to, well, I'd like to see them radically change a curriculum, for example, but you don't have to start there. You know, you just have to start by raising awareness and then slowly move forward. And that can have a really profound influence down the line. Um, yeah, and I, the other thing, I'd say that this isn't an Australian-only issue. This is a global issue. You know, the indigenous communities in Southeast Asia, like I said, and Amazon who are being denied their knowledge, denied their place in their country, Northwest, USA, everywhere, you know, yeah. um, there are similar problems going on. And um, I think it's to the detriment of the world, both environmentally and socially.
1: No, that's right. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways what you describe in in thinking about young people in schools, you know, I find myself reflecting a lot on it's not really about what we teach them and what they know, it's about readying them for the sets of conversations that follow And for me, it's really about what does the conversation between Indigenous knowledges and Western knowledges begin to look like for the next 30 or 40 years. We know what they've looked like for the last 200 and the last 60, and we know they've started to change over the last 30 years. Um... You know, but we, you know, to have those conversations about what the relationship between Indigenous and Western knowledges are that there are points of connection, that there are forms of practices that are not all that different, that they're not always defined by their opposition from one another. But there are also really important points of distinction, different ontological and epistemological foundations that can produce really transformative ways of understanding the world that you know. I think we all hope will be for the better.
2: Yeah. It's not about prioritisation of one way of knowing. I think you're right. It's, it's the harmonisation where possible of the two is the way forward.
1: Thank you so much for your time today, Michael.
2: Thanks a lot, Sana.
0: Thank you to Associate Professor Sana Nakata, Associate Dean, Indigenous, at the Faculty of Arts, University of Melbourne and Michael Sean Fletcher, Associate Dean Indigenous at the Faculty of Science, University of Melbourne. This was Five Things About Indigenous Knowledge. Five Things About was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on June 21, 2021. Audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Five Things About is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Five Things About.